Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Here today, uh, I haven't had the privilege of hearing him before, but uh, a number of you probably have, and uh, judging from the crowd, you're glad to be here. Uh, Michael's going to talk about a voyage through the Northwest Passage, which he was part of on, in August of this year, uh, traveling on both a Canadian and a Russian uh, ship. And uh, so it's, he's going to have lots of things to say, and I'm, I'm not going to talk t- too much here. But he is the Canadian Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. He has been quite prolific as far as writing, uh, writing for Canadian newspapers as well as international, and he has written a number of books. The most recent one, Who Owns the Arctic, and he has eight copies, actually only seven because I'm buying one, and, and, uh, and they're worth $20, and they will be available after the session, and uh, his mom has a, a bunch of them, and they'll go out there uh, on the table outside for $20. So, uh, and rumors are that, and I don't see her here today, but uh, that Sylvia Campbell was one of his teachers at the Lethbridge Collegiate Institute, LCI, so he, he uh, has, has, is not new to, uh, to Lethbridge. And it's with great honor that I ask Michael to come forward and give his presentation. Well, it's great to be back. Um, Thank you uh, very much. Uh, I've spoken about the Arctic in Lethbridge before, and so I'm not going to give the same talk again, because some of you have heard this. Uh, Instead, I'm going to show some pictures and maybe talk about the pictures a little bit. Um, And a picture is worth a thousand words. So um, in 30 minutes, I could probably do the equivalent of Oh, about 40,000 words of talking. Okay, this is the Arctic. The Canadian, um, this is Canada. 40% of it is Arctic. Um, it's important to realize the distances involved, it's the same distance from Point Pelee, Ontario, to Alert, Nunavut, as it is from Sandspit, British Columbia, to St. John's, Newfoundland. The country is just as tall as it is wide. Um, and uh, I'm going to take you on two ships the first ship is the Canadian Coast Guard icebreaker, the Admonson. Uh, we're going to go from Pond Inlet on the northern tip of Baffin Island across uh, to Resolute on uh, Cornwallis Island uh, in the middle of, of the Canadian archipelago. That's a, a six-day voyage. Uh, and then uh, we're going to switch ships uh, and get on a, a Russian uh, ship owned by the Russian Academy of Sciences, uh, the academic Yaffe, and we're going to go south uh, from Cornwallis, um, basically uh, through the, the classic route of, of the Northwest Passage, um, and uh, we're going to end up right there at, at Kogluktuk. Uh, which used to be called Copper Mine, but of course before it was called Copper Mine, it was called Kogluktuk. Um, and uh, that voyage is going to take us uh, about two weeks. This is a, a very big place, <laughs> and, and we're sailing at, at 12 knots, and we're sailing 24 hours a day, and it still is going to take us roughly three weeks to do the Northwest Passage. Okay? 
And uh, here again, um, uh, the Northwest Passage is a series of, of different uh, straits and channels, uh, different possibilities. Uh, we are essentially going to take one of those possibilities. And again, I'll just trace it for you quickly now. Okay, we arrive in Pond Inlet. Um, Pond Inlet is a small community of roughly uh, 1,200 people. Uh, it's a very busy uh, place in the summertime. Uh, there were, in fact, five aircraft on the apron at Pond Inlet uh, with a, a, a only 4,000-foot uh, gravel strip. Um, but uh, just to give you a sense of it, there were 10 seats in the airport, little tiny airport. There were 150 seats on the planes outside. Okay? And this is because of tourism, it's because of, of prospecting, uh, it's uh, because of, of the amount of science that's being done in the north. The north is a very busy place. This is how we get on the ship. Uh, this is a uh, Canadian Coast Guard helicopter. It's a, a Messerschmitt helicopter, which uh, Canada purchased some, uh, oh, 25 years ago now, with the kind assistance of a man named Carl Heinz Schreiber. <laughs> They're good helicopters. <laughs> we just paid 10% more than we should have. Um, this is the view from Pond Inlet out uh, to the ship. That's the, the Admonson on the left-hand side. And yes, that is an iceberg on the right-hand side, uh, an iceberg that would have broken off a glacier um, on the northwestern flank of, of Greenland and drifted down here in, into Eclipse uh, Sound. Uh, another look, uh, Admonson on the right-hand side here. This is the Asteria, which is one of the 34 private yachts that sailed through the Northwest Passage this past summer. 34. Um, uh, she's rather nice as a vessel. It's a, a refitted, uh, uh, I believe, uh, fishing vessel. Um, it's very fancy. It's very expensive. Um, but 34 private yachts went through the Northwest Passage. I don't yet know how many larger vessels, but somewhere in the range of, of 20 to 30 uh, larger vessels would have also gone through because the ice is melting and this has become the new uh, point of, of destination for adventurers uh, from around the world. The Admonson in, in the back on the right is uh, my second home. I, I love this ship. Um, this is Canada's marine Arctic platform. It used to be called the Sir John Franklin. It was mothballed by the Coast Guard 10 years ago and rescued by a uh, marine biologist at the University of Laval named uh, Louis Fautier, who convinced uh, Alan Rock, who was then industry minister, that this was an opportunity for Canada. Um, it's a phenomenal vessel. It has more scientific equipment on board than, than it should have because it's almost at the point of tipping over uh, from all the stuff, but it's what we do. Um, this photograph was taken at midnight in Eclipse Sound. Um, Land of the Midnight Sun. Um, and that is, a, of course, a, another iceberg. Uh, a truly staggering uh, place, the Arctic. Again, at midnight, um, these uh, mountains, um, the glacier, this is on Bilet Island, um, just off of the northern uh, edge of, of Baffin Island. Uh, it's a national park, uh, somewhere in the range of about uh, 40 people 
per year visit this rather large and spectacular national park, and that's the way I think it should stay. Um, it, uh, it's a very important place, particularly in terms of uh, um, a nesting place for uh, waterfowl, uh, literally millions of, of snow geese, for instance, uh, um, lay their eggs, hatch their young on, on Violet Island, and, and as you can see, uh, it still has some, some pretty spectacular glaciers. Um, moving northward out of uh, Eclipse Sound, we're into uh, Lancaster Sound, uh, the uh, uh, eastern, um, the principal eastern entrance to the Northwest Passage, one of the biologically richest uh, marine zones in the whole world, often called the Serengeti of the Arctic. Uh, most of the world's narwhals uh, live in Lancaster Sound. Uh, significant populations of bowhead whales, uh, belugas. Um, it, it's a truly extraordinary place. And, and this is a piece of ice that we've come across that that uh, is called a bergy bit because it's broken off some glacial ice. And, and we started to see lots of these, and, and we had a hunch as to, to to what we were about to found to find. Um, and what we find is along the bottom edge here of the photograph, we found an ice island. Uh, it was about a mile long and about half a mile wide. Um, there was about 50 feet above the water, which means that there would have been 350 feet below the water. Um, it, uh, it's an ice shelf that broke off of northern Greenland. Uh, and this is a portion of that ice shelf that found its way into Lancaster Sound. And uh, this was really interesting. Um, so we, we sent the helicopter across uh, with our chief scientist, uh, Louis Fortier, and with uh, Julie Payette, the Canadian astronaut, um, who was along um, as a VIP on the trip, at least officially as a VIP, but we brought her because if you're ever going to get into a dangerous situation, you want to be with someone who has intentionally been dunked 500 times into the North Atlantic from a helicopter. Um, Best trained people on the planet, astronauts. Um, so we went across, um, checked out the ice island, landed on it, put a satellite beacon on it, did an ice core, all that kind of stuff. Um, we're seeing a lot more of this glacial ice in the water because the glaciers are moving more quickly into the ocean as climate change melts the surface, water flows down to the base of the glaciers and lubricates their movement into the sea. So more glacial ice, less sea ice. Um, the Admonton, of course, again, a science ship. Um, this is the barge, um, which uh, is used to, to get away from the ship uh, to uh, do uh, sensing without the uh, uh, interference of having a large vessel with uh, generators and all that running. Um, and uh, it's pretty, um, well, we call it the barge, but it can go about 35 knots. Um, this is the ship itself. Um, we, we wanted to find some sea ice, and uh, we had to go uh, much further west than we had expected. This is in Barrow Strait. We finally got into some um, fairly rotten um, uh, sea ice uh, there. Um, it, uh, it was actually kind of depressing because it was uh, a good um, 200 miles further west than we'd hoped to find it, uh, where we would have found it on previous years. Um, this was the first week in August. By the first week in September, there was no sea ice anywhere in Canada's Arctic, nothing. Um, and, and, and this stuff melts very quickly in that 24-hour daylight, in that powerful uh, blast of, of solar energy, particularly as not only the air has become warmer, but, but gradually the, the water has warmed as well. 
So just a, a couple um, pictures of, of this. There's a, a little bit of uh, iceberg ice mixed up in this. Uh, that's actually a cloud, across, reflection of a cloud across the bottom of, of the picture. And, and we did find a few pieces of multi-year ice, ice that had survived more than one summer warming and has become thicker as a result of new ice accreting onto it. It's a bit dirty on the surface. There, there is pollution in the Arctic, um, much of it coming from China. Um, and you see the, the darker blue. Uh, this is what you don't want to hit with a ship, is, is multi-year ice or, or glacial ice. Um, the leading sea ice scientists in the world predict that within the next three to ten years, all of the multi-year ice will, will disappear. It will be gone because there will be a complete melt-out of, of all the Arctic sea ice. And at that point, the shipping will, will come um, in, in truly significant volumes. Um, we also landed on this on the helicopter, which was kind of cool. Um, and so we're, we're, in, um, we're in Barrow Strait, um, one of the main choke points of the Northwest Passage, a choke point because there's a string of islands that extends across uh, Barrow Strait, which means that any vessel sailing through the Northwest Passage has to pass within 12 nautical miles of, of Canadian land, which means that uh, at a minimum the Northwest Passage cannot be high seas. It, it, it could be an international strait, as the Americans argue it is, but it cannot be high seas because of these, these islands. Um, and, uh, and, and we're there, and I'm thinking, hey, we're at the choke point, and my, these, these islands are actually looking um, not very tall. Um, they're, they're gravel islands, um, and uh, they're susceptible to erosion, and, and, of course, they're susceptible to, to sea level rise. Right? We... We lose the entire um, Greenland ice cap. The oceans go up seven meters. You, you lose uh, land-based ice in Antarctica, and the ocean goes up even higher. And I'm looking at these and going, well, in the long term, um, uh, are all these islands actually going to be there, ensuring that the Northwest Passage is not a high seas channel? And so I did what every good scientist has to do. I went and took a look with the ship's helicopter, and we actually landed on the two smaller islands and measured the height with the GPS, and I'm pleased to report that there is at least 60 feet of gravel above the water, so we're okay for, for a few decades uh, yet. Um, but I did get back to the, the ship, and I was talking with the, the, um, the captain, and then later on another vessel, um, the Russian vessel, I got to see some uh, um, old Soviet charts and, uh, and this is the area uh, that we just saw on that picture. Uh, that's a young island up at the top. This is the Canadian chart. And just out of interest, I, I thought I would uh, show you uh, the exact same place on the old Soviet chart. Yes, there are, in fact, more soundings on the Soviet chart than there are on the, the uh, Canadian uh, chart which I take as proof positive that uh, Soviet submarines were in these waters during the Cold War. Uh, it's a choke point, and it's not just uh, surface uh, vessels that uh, uh, have used these waters and will use these waters, but also uh, submarine ones. Okay, um, end of the first trip. Um, we're at Resolute um, on Cornwallis Island. Um, there's actually a Canadian military exercise taking place, Operation Nanook, um, you have two uh, twin otters here on the left, uh, Ken Boric Air. Those are for the Polar Continental Shelf Program. They're ferrying 
Arctic researchers out to dozens of field camps um, across the high Arctic. And the two twin otters on the right-hand side are Canadian Forces twin helicopters, uh, sorry, twin otters, uh, Canadian Forces uh, twin otters, and they're uh, here for Operation Nanook. Uh, I took a picture out of the uh, window of the uh, uh, dormitory at uh, Polar Continental Shelf just to show you where our soldiers were sleeping uh, during this exercise. Um, we had a tragedy um, just a week after I took this picture. The director of the Polar Continental Shelf program, Marty Bergman, uh, was killed along with um, nine other people when a uh, 737 crashed at, at Resolute. And I'm reminded of that and of him because uh, he was actually hosting our, our visit he took us uh, here, which is a, a, an old uh, Thule site, archaeological site, uh, on the south end of, of Cornwallis Island, uh, where um, we found this, which was, for me, hugely significant. This is a, a um, monument that was erected by the Inuit Land Claims Organization uh, a year and a half ago, um, Nunavut Tungavuk Incorporated. And the plaque um, actually says that this is to commemorate uh, the Inuit who were forcibly moved to Cornwallis Island and Ellesmere Island in 1953, the high Arctic exiles, um, and it's a reflection of the centrality of the Inuit to Canada's Arctic sovereignty. Not the Canadian government that put this up, but the Inuit themselves. It's a very moving thing, and, and I've met some of the survivors of, of that relocation, and they are truly remarkable people. Okay, from now on, all the pictures are not taken by me, but by this young man here. Um, this is my son, Cameron, uh, Brigadier and Bob's um, uh, middle grandson. Uh, he's 11 years old, and he came with me on the second voyage, and he's a far better photographer than, than I am, so full credit uh, to him from now on. Um, back to Resolute, so it's a week later. Um, the ship down there is the, the Russian ship, uh, the academic Yafe. We're coming on board uh, with 100 people just like you. Um, the demographic is identical. Um, Canadian, uh, retired, highly educated, very interested in the world, in nature, in geopolitics, in everything else. Um, this is an eco-expedition um, organized by One Ocean uh, out of Vancouver uh, together with Worldwide Quest out of, out of Toronto, and I'm now a guest lecturer on board and my son is my cabin mate. Here's the ship again, um, like the Admonson, a, a wonderful ship built for the Arctic. A fabulous crew. Um, the Russian Academy of Sciences is very strapped for cash these days, and so they actually charter out their science ships to be used by eco-tourists, um, which is unfortunate, although an opportunity uh, for those who, who want to see the North. Um, the beauty of being on uh, an eco-cruise is you get to go ashore every day by Zodiac. Uh, on the Admonson, they're doing science. Unless there's a reason, a scientific reason, you don't go ashore um, because time is, um, is data. Um, but on an expedition ship, it's a little bit more relaxed, and, and off we go. Um, Beachy Island on uh, – sorry. Yes, this is Beachy Island uh, just off Devon Island. Um, these are the graves of uh, three members of the Franklin Expedition, um, a uh, – a remarkable bit of, of Arctic history, um, a, a truly barren, uh, desolate place. Uh, one can only imagine why anyone would choose to overwinter there, but they did. The Franklin Expedition, as you know, was not successful. I personally think we should be celebrating Henry McClure 
who, who actually was successful and was the one who got the prize for completing the first um, Northwest Passage voyage. We found this guy at Beachy Island, uh, a young, um, hungry but pretty relaxed polar bear. Uh, he, uh, he wasn't particularly interested in, in us. And just so you know, um, yes, this was taken with a telephoto, but, we, but we, were, we were only about 30 meters away. Um, so uh, we were pretty close. He was pretty, pretty chilled out. Um, and, and he's absolutely fine because Beachy Island is still a long ways north. It's about 75 degrees north, and so he doesn't need to worry about, um, in his lifetime, losing so much sea ice for a sufficiently long period of time that he can't make it through the summer. He, he'll be just fine. His, his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, maybe not so, but, but uh, this is a, a happy bear. Um, icebergs, again, this is one we found just off Beachy. Uh, pretty spectacular stuff. Again, seven times as much below as there is above the water. Just to give you a sense of scale, uh, there's Cameron and myself. And um, in a, an old tradition that, that dates back um, generations and includes my father here, when men go to the Arctic, they stop shaving. <laughs> Cameron's not old enough yet. Um, the Arctic is not just the big visuals. It's not just the charismatic carnivores. It's also the small stuff. So look at the lichen. Uh, look at the, the Arctic willow. Um, it, it, this is the stuff that you see when you get down on your hands and knees. And, and every time we go ashore with the expedition, there's actually a group that, that's called the contemplative group, and they only move about 30 meters per hour because they're looking at this stuff, which is, which is extraordinary. I mean, take a look at this and take a really good look at this. Dad, take a good look at this. Because there's not only an Arctic willow in there, there's an insect in this picture. Where's the insect? He's somewhere. Oh, I'll give you a better shot of him. There he is. There's a woolly caterpillar. Okay, he's about, he's about 700 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. And he's been munching on that willow. Mm -hmm. There's lots of stuff in the Arctic when you get up close. There's a spider. It's just... Oh, there's a track. That's actually the track of a barren land grizzly bear, right? Um, which is about the size of your car, okay? Um, anyone here read Lost in the Barrens? Farley Mowat? Eh, barren land grizzly bear. Um, kind of like a polar bear except brown. Um, wolf tracks. Arctic wolf tracks, and there was actually a mother with a couple of uh, cubs who left a wonderful uh, set of tracks for us. Um, oh, scat. Anyone who's spent a lot of time in nature knows that you, you see a lot more poo than you see animals, right? And so looking for poo is important. Um, that's actually bear poo. It's a big bear. Um, Cameron, my son, uh, and I uh, suspect we may have found John Franklin's grave. This was near Victory Point. Um, uh, we took a picture of it, uh, made the mistake of not showing it to anyone knowledgeable for about a week, and at that point, he got really excited, this person we showed it to, so we're going to have to go back next summer um, and, and, and take a, a few more pictures and, and perhaps have, have an expert with us. Uh, it could uh, obviously be someone else's grave or a food cache. It's been there for a long time. It's definitely human. And we do know that the Franklin expedition um, overwintered here and that this was very close to where Franklin died. Um, my son loves taking bird pictures. Here's a, a beautiful uh, gull. I think it might be a glaucus. I'm not all that sure. 
Um, this was exciting. Uh, this, was, uh, this has been zoomed in a lot digitally, so you can see it. We saw a white morph gyr falcon. And if anyone here is an ornithologist, I mean, that's like a you know, top of the list for lifetime achievement. Um, uh, and, and we didn't see just one. We saw four or five um, of the white morph gyr falcons. Um, and, and as you can imagine, like of these 100 ecotourists, like for the 50 of them who were totally fanatical Twitchers. This was the, 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 the site of a lifetime. Um, just other, lots of other beautiful birds. Those are snow geese uh, at Victory Point. And flowers. The, at Cambridge Bay, um, where we, we made one uh, community visit. Um, we got a, a cultural presentation um, at Cambridge Bay in the high school. Um, isn't that a, just a wonderful, I think it's Wolverine um, uh, hood on that parka. Um, muskox skull, and this was at Cambridge Bay. There was a stash of them just on the beach. Um, and uh, Cameron, of course, had to pick it up and show how big it is. We, we did see muskox, but from such a distance that, that it wasn't worth showing you a picture. Um, and then in Cambridge Bay, I stumbled across these. Um, U.S. Air Force. Um, and, and they're working trucks. Um, and, uh, and one of the things you see when you travel in the Arctic is, is lots of evidence of... Uh, of um, military presence, um, including American military presence in uh, um, old Dewline stations that are still manned. Um, this was a, on Lady Franklin Point, and uh, we didn't go ashore, but you could see um, the windsock at the airfield uh, gleaming with newness as it uh, uh, was held out by the wind. Um, there is a, a military presence in the Arctic, a surveillance presence, and uh, and yes, some of it is still American. Um, we don't talk about that as as much as we probably should. And with the military presence has come over decades um, the leftovers, um, oil drums uh, like this, quite common near near Dewline sites. Here's a dump. Um, it's very expensive to move things around the Arctic and. Moving, moving junk back to the south is prohibitive, so it just stays. And of course, this is a desert, and it's um, often very cold, and, and so nothing decays. It's just there um, forever. Um, and and there is obviously some effort to clean up PCBs and other toxins, but the actual trash um, is simply just a, a blight that will remain. Now we we saw some, we did see some some. Uh, rather larger animals. This is the uh, uh, the tail of a bowhead whale. Um, bowhead whales, by the way, were almost exterminated by uh, human beings uh, roughly a century ago. And this is one of the success stories of environmental protection by pulling together as, uh, as nation states, we've actually saved the bowhead. And they are rebounding. And I have seen bowheads across the Canadian Arctic. Um, and one of the things that's quite... Um, thought-provoking is when you see a bowhead, these mammals live to be 200 years old. Uh, and, and their species went through the equivalent of a genocide um, during the whaling period. Um, I was at one whaling station on Baffin Island last summer, 2010, 
where uh, 6,000 bowheads had been slaughtered. Um, and, and the actual population went down to just over 100 at one point, 100 of these, and they're coming back. And some of these whales would remember that period of extermination. And yet they'll let you come quite close. They are gentle giants. They are absolutely wonderful. And they'll let you come and see them, that these heads that are half of these bodies and these bodies that are 50 or 60 feet long. Um, very, very special moments. And uh, this is a picture that Cameron took. This is actually the, 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 the ship chart. This is our route as we um, chase bowheads. See, going around and around in circles as we're chasing the bowheads, trying to get uh, pictures for people. And the bowheads are cooperating. So we spent a, this is in, uh, in Franklin Bay. We spent, we spent a day um, playing with bowheads. Um, <clears throat> we also visited the Smoking Hills, um, uh, which is actually quite close to Tuktoyuktuk, a spectacular place. Uh, we saw muskox and caribou and barren land grizzlies on these slopes. And I thought it looked a little bit like um, the Old Man River Valley, so I thought I'd, I'd show this picture. Um, the difference is that they're the, called the Smoking Hills for a reason. Um, there are actually significant bitumen deposits in these hills, and they have been burning for hundreds of years. So this is the sunset behind the burning of the, the bitumen. It's a slow burn, and it's almost certainly a natural burn. Um, uh, it creates a, a pretty special and somewhat spooky place. Um, other wildlife, uh, we got really close to this guy. This is a, a rough-legged hawk. It's a chick. He's ready to fly. Uh, rough-legged because he's an Arctic species, and he's got feathers on his uh, legs to keep him warm. Um, Cameron found some baleen uh, from a, a bowhead whale. Gives you a sense of the proportions of a bowhead whale. If a piece of its uh, essentially mouth is is what's that about uh, ten feet tall? Um, and then there's lots and lots of history in the Arctic. Um, this was uh, a base of the uh, Canadian Arctic expedition back in the uh, very early part of the, the 20th century. Um, they obviously had a very early mechanized uh, version of a snowmobile. And uh, Cameron, of course, had to, to try it. And then this is how you leave. This is how you come. This is how you leave. Um, this is at Kugluktuk, 5,000 feet of gravel on a 737 fully loaded uh, with people. It has to be an old 737 because none of the new ones actually can operate on gravel because the engines are too easily damaged by, by small pieces of rock. So you fly on old planes onto gravel runways uh, where there's no air traffic control and um, everything else is also equally rudimentary, um, there are risks involved. And I could talk about that at some length. I feel very strongly, um, having lost a close friend in Marty Bergman in a crash this summer, that, that if we're serious about the Arctic as a country, we, we should be serious about, about runways, infrastructure. And you can build all the gunships you want, but if you have... 5,000 gravel strips with no air traffic control at places where hundreds of people come in every day, you're not a serious Arctic country. Um, but we're a fabulously beautiful Arctic country. And this talk today has been as much about that as the sort of darker policy dimension. So thank you very much. Thank you.